Welcome to Into the Breach, a reps and warranties policy podcast by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer, partners and co-leaders of the Transactional Underwriting Council practice at Cyforth Shaw, interviewing leaders from the industry and exploring the latest developments, market trends, and news impacting RWI and the transactional risk insurance markets. Welcome to Into the Breach. Uh, my name is Brian O'Keefe. I'm the co-host of your show here, uh, and I'm joined with my co-host, uh, Jenna Usenheimer. How are you doing this morning, Jenna? Great. I'm doing well. Thank you very much, Brian. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. I think we're going to actually mix it up a little bit uh, today, and we're uh, going to immediately announce our, our guest because we're so excited that he is here. And our guest today is Nick Tulibitz. Uh, he's the co-head of M&A Insurance from North America to Shorter Partners. And we wanted to introduce him because Nick has a birthday, a special birthday in his family today that Nick wanted to uh, announce to the audience. So, uh, Nick, you want to share that news with us? Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I'm excited to be part of the, the beginning of the show here. And, and I think we did this because we talked about today, October 2nd, happens to be my younger brother's birthday. Uh, he lives in London. And it's uh, it was fun to to be able to to do it on his birthday, and uh, I think we have some other birthdays too. So we we had a little theme of it. And what's his name, your younger brother? Sam. 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 Happy Sammy birthday, Boy. Sam. Sam, how old is Sam? Thirty three, apparently. He's I talked to him earlier this morning. He had to tell me how old he was because I'll never remember. Sam's young. He's the so, baby. In addition to Sam, it is my aunt Connie's 89th birthday today. Happy birthday, Aunt Connie! Happy Connie. birthday, Aunt Connie! It's very exciting. Yes, she's excellent. She's doing great. And uh, Brian, she's still driving, which scares me a little, but you know. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Brian, do you have any birthdays in your family? I have, no, I have no no birthdays today. We should have had Sam and Aunt Connie on as guests as well. They could have. You don't want Sam on. He would talk forever. He's he's borderline insufferable. I love him, but he's just he will continue and we'll we'll lose all our time. So we're not gonna, we're not going to edit that part out. Oh no, that's fine. That's yeah, no, that's fine. I tell it to him all the time. But I tell you what, Brian, uh, you don't. I can give you a birthday to have because I went and looked this up. October second. Wow. Gandhi's birthday. Oh well. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm very Gandhi. Eighteen sixty nine. Eighteen sixty nine. Nineteen forty nine. Annie Leibovitz, the yeah. photographer. Yeah. And and 1951 Sting, oh, so well. it's quite a big a celebration day. day. I'm telling you, October second. I think, I think I'll stick with Gandhi. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a tough one. Yeah. A tough yes. one to beat. Yes, yes. That's a that's a pretty uh, important birth. Fighting Too bad for Gandhi can't join us today. Fight, yeah. Fighting for justice in corporate insurance. That yeah, is what we do. So. We're glad <laughs> <you're> <laughs> <laughs> um, but well, no, Nick, we're very. Very excited to have you uh, have you with us today, birthdays and all, and, and thanks for joining us. And um, we know that you're uh, uh, most people listening in this show uh, know who you are, but maybe for anybody who doesn't, if you wanted to introduce yourself, and uh, we also know that you have a uh, have a new position. You've just uh, recently switched shops, and maybe you want to tell the guests a little bit about that too. Yeah, yeah, I'm so excited to be to be famous now that I'm on this podcast and people are going to know who I am. Uh, yeah, this is definitely the line of demarcation between I, I, fame and not fame. I right told here. my wife this morning. I told my wife I was yeah. like, "Remember me now," because That's right. you know, after this, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's a different world. So yeah, so uh, I am at Assured Partners, uh, the co-head of the M&A Insurance Transaction Liability Rep and Warranty, whichever name we want to use for it, uh, along with my colleague Darlene Heckman. Um, it's uh, it's about a month. Of, 
the Shirt Partners has been doing reps uh, for a while, but uh, we are now building out the team. Um, my background, I'm an M&A attorney uh, at Darwin as well, which is a, a big point for us. Uh, I worked at Kirkland Ellis and Gooden Proctor, and Kirkland's really where I, I cut my teeth, and that's where you know, Brian and I initially initially uh, kicked off. Um, and Darlin uh, was at Weill and and uh, and ropes and gray. So, you know, bringing that to the practice and, and building that out, I think is a is a big push for us. But it's exciting. We're we're super excited about it. We've been busy from the start, which is fantastic. And you know, just hope to uh, to keep that up. Great. Well, we uh, like to have Kirk Cohen and Ellis alumni on, being one myself. So it's uh, great to have you there. And you know, maybe Nick, um, you know, we know that uh, reps and Corporate insurance is uh, the most exciting thing in the world on yep. its own. So maybe you want to explain to the audience, you know, how you how you got into this. Uh, you know, beyond just uh, being an M and A attorney at Kirkland, like uh, just what really made you think that this was the career you wanted, to, the career path you wanted to take? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think Kenny has been a big proponent of the reps from the early years, right? And and being in New York, um, you know, guys like Marcus Bolsinger is now Deckard. Uh, Jeremy Lewis is still, you know, in Chicago, and uh, those guys had pushed for this in the early days. So I think that's that's really where I learned. And you know, coming up through uh, through my years, and I think you know, it's a it's a group that actually practiced with using rep warranty insurance, um, as opposed to people that you know, maybe were firms a, f- a few years earlier that um, you know then moved into insurance and then built it out. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I've been using it. I, I knew people at different shops. I actually almost went to work uh, for Jay Ripberg when he was at AIG, um, right before they moved over to Euclid. Uh, and that's when I, w- I went to Goodwin. And once I got married uh, and wanted to get out of a law firm, uh, the opportunity came up and, and I moved into the space. And it's worked so out really weird. well. weird. You wanted to leave a law firm. I know, right? <laughs> it was an unusual thing to hear it was, about. It was yeah. tough. It was tough. I was really torn. Um, but, you know, they, they were all great. And it was a, you know, a, a new change. And it's worked out. I've always said, you know, I think I was a, a relatively decent lawyer, but I'm, I'm better with people. And the broker experience sort of gives me a little bit of that combination. And, uh, you know, we, we get along. People, people like us generally. We like you Thank a lot. You? Yeah, yes, yes. I was just gonna say you're a beautiful person. Have you on the it's, a, it's a fun space. It's a fun space. The world is still small enough that people know each other and you know and people get along and I I, I love it. I, I enjoy it and people are great and you know we'll uh, hope it continues that way. Great. Well, and I do think you have a uh, a real expertise in this, Nick, and having you know really worked with it a lot at Kirkland and. That's kind of the subject that we wanted to uh, talk about today. I know that that's really, I think, uh, your background and, and what you really bring to the game and what makes you uh, very different as a broker. And you know, the subject of today's show, um, you know, we've talked about would sort of be, you know, five tips uh, for reps and warranty insurance when we're when you're facing really tight deadlines. And we know that that's a very uh, common problem. Um, you know, we get deals and there's extremely quick turnarounds here and, and there seems like there's a lot of chaos. Um, and, you know, as a broker, I, you know, I think you kind of had come up with some, you know, really helpful tips and ways that, uh, that, that could really benefit the product. So, um, you know, I know the first one we talked about, maybe we'll, I'll just kick it off. Um, you know, you had said it's important to use the buyer's markup of the purchase agreement um, when, when you're out soliciting reps and warranty terms and when you're we are putting it out to the submission. So maybe you can explain a little bit about why that is important uh, to take that approach. Yeah, listen, I mean, and again, happy to be here. And I think the goal for when we're thinking of topics was, you know, how can we just be practical in this little bit of time uh, to make it useful for, for anybody that's listening? So, 
the the tight deadline is a situation that you know everyone faces at some point and you know it, it adds stress and there's a lot going on and i think that's an important part of the broker's role is to minimize headache in the rep warranty process so you know, where does that come into play more often than ever is when times are most stressed so you got a tight deadline uh in, in an auction you know, listen, you're not able to use buyer's markup every time just based on timing, right? If, uh, if there's going to be too fast turnaround and you need to get out of the markets, you know, using the auction draft is understandable. But whenever possible, I like to use buyer's markup because I think it just gives you sharper terms. It gives the, uh, the insurers the ability to, you know, sort of see where you're headed. And as opposed to the auction draft that, you know, everyone else in the auction is giving them. Uh, it gives just a little more insight into where the buyer is looking to go and also you know, just who the buyer is, right? You can tell a lot just from how aggressive a buyer is going to be in that markup. Maybe they're not aggressive, which shows you know, that they're really trying to, to win the deal over. And that's a, a, a large portion of it showing their willingness to be soft as opposed to aggressive. Uh, so I just think it, it really gives more insight to carriers to be able to understand. And I think then it, puts on them the ability to offer terms as sharp as possible, knowing that uh, as opposed to when you see a seller's draft, they don't know where it could go, right? They don't know what the buyer is going to do. And I think it just puts them in the best position to give you the best terms. How often do you think that the buyer's markup is ready when you're going out soliciting bids? I mean, it's, it's, it, it varies, right? And I, I think yeah. the, the reason that I bring it up is that obviously people want to have the comfort of knowing what terms they have. Uh, available to them going to the option. Sure. But I think that there are certain times where even though when, when things are pressed, there's time enough to wait for buyer's markup before maybe the final bid is due. And then you know that you're going to have at least a week of you know, some confirmatory diligence. But the whole process of moving forward with reps won't be able to happen until all the diligence is, is done. So, you know, which, which people love because it's late in the game. But at the end of the day, practically speaking, it can't move forward till then. So really you do have some time up front to be strategic and smart about how you're going to go to the markets and what you're going to do with it. It's true. And that sort of feeds right into your next suggestion, which has to do with the underwriting call and the timing of that call. Right? So what do you, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this, this one I think is even more key because if you go out to market with the auction job, it's not the end of the world. I, I think it's better to go with buyer when you can, but a much more important one is don't force or, or really rush the timing of your underwriting call. Um, listen, time constraints are, advice. yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, time constraints are intense and everybody wants to have reps out of the way so that reps isn't the long pole in the deal. Well, reps is never the long pole in the deal. I promise. I, at least not on my watch is never the long pole in the deal, right? There's so many other things going on, but people want to press to get that underwriting call so that they get out of the way so that they get follow-ups and they feel more comfortable as to where reps are going to land. But the, the important part is understanding from the other side, right? And, and I'm speaking for you guys and the insurers, but as a broker, I need to sort of understand both to be able to facilitate it, is giving the ability of the insurer and their counsel the time to really absorb the diligence right. uh, allows for a much more effective and efficient underwriting call so that that call goes better and then you have fewer follow-ups. Exactly. And really, that's where you save time, right? Because by allowing that time right. up front, you save a ton of time on the back end because the follow-ups are where the time is really, that then becomes out of your hands because now you're relying on seller to come back with information. You've got another party involved and you're losing some control over that process. So allowing, allowing time up front for a, a really strong underwriting call. Typically I want 48 hours 
for the, the buyer's council, the uh, insurer's council to have at least 48 hours for the materials. So that's usually, you know, two business days. If it's over the weekend, you know, one business day. And that way the call can be more focused. They're not asking general questions because they've had the ability to really understand the company and the diligence. And, and the, the call can target in on the types of things that would end up as follow-ups. So you eliminate right. those and you save time in the back end. It's just, it's a much better process when possible. Listen, there's always going to be outliers. There's always going to be times where I, I've literally, I've had a deal where I, I underwritten in, in a day, everything came in and like the day before I had underwritten a day, they had to deal with a lot of exclusions because that's just the way of the world. But right. um, no, that's the farthest from ideal. And this is when you have the ability to think strategically and time this out, uh, giving that time up front, although it makes some people uncomfortable because they want to have the process done, it will benefit you in the long run. Yeah, and, yeah, and I, I can say that representing the carriers, the underwriting calls are the most uncomfortable. Have We have the most follow-up questions when there hasn't been robust diligence and we haven't had a chance to really absorb everything. So the later, the latest in the game that we can push that underwriting call, I totally agree with you, the, the easier the process goes for everybody. Yeah, I think it's just important for people to understand both sides of the coin, right? Buyers come in, they, they're paying right. for an insurance policy, they want good coverage, they want it to be efficient, they're choosing carriers who they think are gonna do the best job, but you also need to understand what you guys need to have in order for the best job to get done. Exactly. And you need to have the exactly. time, you need to have the ability to work through it. And, um, you know, like I said, it's sometimes, sometimes it's possible, but these are the types of things when you can be thoughtful and strategic, even in a tight process, right? Everybody's stressed, but you just step back for a second and think, all right, well, what's the best way to do this? Having some time before the underwriting call is, is a key factor because if you don't, and then you have a lot of follow-ups at the end, now you've added extra stress to the like most stressful time of the deal, uh, you know, tight signing, pre-signing. Uh, so that's, yeah, give yourself some time. We yeah. agree. We, we also, I think we've seen this before too. I think just being realistic about it, we see sometimes, you know, uh, we'll get a deal very quickly and then they'll be like, well, we're going to do the underwriting call tomorrow. And we all know the chances of that happening right. are like, <laughs> like pretty slim, right. but uh, you know, we have to then email all of our specialists and you know, it's Friday night at midnight and we're ruining their weekends for something that then doesn't happen until Tuesday. <laughs> and, um, and I think just being realistic and upfront about it, like, Hey, we'll just do it Monday. We'll give you guys the weekend to get yourselves together. We will do it whenever we have to do it ultimately. But like, I think being realistic and, and giving some headway on it, as opposed to giving unrealistic deadlines, like right out of the gate, actually, it actually makes the process harder and more complicated on the underwriting side. Yeah, well, I think it plays into just, I mean, listen, one of my biggest things is trying to make this whole process human, right? Understanding who's involved and what they're doing. <laughs> and, you know, everybody that's been in this business has, has played the game of understanding, you know, false deadlines and how to, how to manage, you know, people that are looking to do that. I think that there's, there's two sides of it, right? There's an understanding and a sympathy to buyers that they have to present this, uh, this, this image to seller of how fast they're working, right? And they're under pressure to do that. And that's fine. But then, you know, having some level of trust on the buy side team to be able to be realistic about timing, you know, puts you in the best position. And, you know, false deadlines don't help anybody. So I think it's not just a matter of, you know, let's not have false deadlines. I think it's, it's important to also acknowledge you know, the, the fact that buyer still has to present whatever image they have to the seller, you know, and that may be false deadlines, but having an understanding within the buy side team of, listen, this is realistic. We're not going to go broadcast that, 
right. this is realistic <laughs> to be smart about it. Right, right. right. No, I, think, I think that makes total sense. And then um, your third one that you, that we've been talking about, you know, you had labeled it, don't fear uh, conditional exclusions. And I think this is a, is a really important point. I know different markets have different uh, perspectives on their willingness to use or, or not use conditional exclusions. I, I do think that they can be a valuable uh, uh, tool that, that can be used to get kind of get everybody comfortable with it. So maybe you want to explain about what your experience has been with conditional exclusions. I do. And, and if I, and I don't know how this could shot, but if I can also, because I don't want to forget it on the, the timing of the underwriting column and the mm -hmm. process overall, it's important that you can ask for a draft of the policy earlier on in the process. You don't need to wait until the underwriting call, after the underwriting call to get that draft. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, understanding somebody can't turn it around in 10 minutes, but the initial draft doesn't need to have anything to do with exclusions, right? It's going to be subject to underwriting. And, you know, don't be shy about if you have a precedent with the counsel you're using and the client you're using, you know, laying that all out, you can get that draft policy. Having that in hand, I think also gives the client some comfort that the process is moving along rather than having them feel like they're in the lurch waiting for an underwriting call, not knowing where the rep process is and if it's gonna cause them a headache down the road. Mm -hmm. um, but so conditional exclusions. I, this, it's, it's never a first resort, right? The goal is to try to have everything complete by the time that you're binding. Uh, and sometimes the reality is timing just doesn't allow for it, right? So if, if you need to sign and there's an outstanding follow-up item, Again, we talked about it's sort of out of your hands, right? There's certain things you have to go to seller for. You can't force them to give you answers in the time frame that you need to. You can pressure as much. But having a conditional exclusion is, is a good option to be able to move past the concern of having the, the rest of the policy coverage bound, being able to sign, and then having a period of time when you know everybody's had a chance to breathe to close out that item and then it's deleted in the policy, right? Policies generally aren't issued until later in the game. Some carriers you know, issue them at binding, but there's, there's still ways to adjust for that. Everyone can do conditional exclusions. And for those who aren't familiar, you're basically just having an exclusion on that specific issue that has the outstanding inquiry. And it's, it's brackets. And once you give the carrier the information that gets them comfortable, that's not the risk, right? Then, then they're going to remove it. And I don't think, I think people have a concern, well, oh, well, if, I, if I've already bound the policy and I have this outstanding item, you know, maybe the carrier has less motivation to remove that, I, and that's not the case, right? No carriers are using conditional exclusions as leverage to have exclusions in a policy. Nobody wants exclusions, right? There's two ways you get exclusions in a policy. One is that there's a known material liability, which shouldn't be covered, and two is exclusion by omission, and that's the one that shouldn't happen. And, and one of the ways to avoid that is having a conditional exclusion when you know that you can get that information and get it removed. Um, so I, I just think it's, it's an important thing to, to keep in mind. It's in the tool chest. And I, I think it is a last case resort, but that being said, I think on the broker side, one of the things I think about is as the process is going, at least teeing it up earlier than last second, right? So even if we're not sure if I'm gonna get an answer in time for the time that they're gonna bind, if I know that there's that possibility then I wanna reach out to the carrier and get whatever language they think they're gonna use so we can at least hash that out just in case, right? right. So we don't have to use a conditional solution. Hopefully the information comes in, but let's get that language, that potential language up front earlier than later so that folks are at least have seen that and are comfortable with it. So that if we have to go down that route, you know, we've already we've already taken care of that. Yeah. I mean, I can say as buyer's counsel, I'm often buyer's counsel and we 
we tend to like a conditional exclusion. You know, it's like the underwriters are working with us. They say like, hey, we don't feel comfortable with the amount of diligence maybe that's been done yet, but you know, we're not digging in our feet. We're gonna keep working with you. And if you just give us some additional information, we're happy to remove it. And at least in my experience, more often than not, conditional exclusions get removed pretty quickly after the policy binds. So it is a good solution to sort of meet everybody halfway and move the process forward. And, and optically it's important too, because right, one of the things clients looking for is to remove that bracket of like TBD of how many, what right. exclusions could come. Right. So if you get to that point where there's really only one issue and you're not sure, being able to replace that TBD with like one specific conditional exclusion gives people comfort that, all right, you've now closed the universe of what potential exclusions could be, exactly. which is a huge, huge point for clients. Yeah. So, and then your, I think the next point that you flagged has to do with the timing of binding, right? You don't have to bind at signing. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, listen, I mean, best practice is always that you bind a policy at signing, right? And, and typically that's what happens, but sometimes it's not possible. And we have bound policies in between signing and closing, I've bound policies at closing. Academically, the risk, right, is that post-signing, the policy is not bound and buyer becomes aware of something that is now a known issue that could be a, an exclusion as a known issue, where if they had bound the policy at signing, they didn't know about it, you know, potentially it was covered. That's the academic issue. And I think it's important for people to understand, practically speaking, that's not really how it works, right? Because in a policy, you have a couple of specific deal team members and the policy coverage is based on their actual knowledge, capital A, capital uh, K, right, of the time term. It's, uh, it's not constructive knowledge. So literally those, those few individuals would have to find out about an issue and within, you know, within that certain period of time post-signing that you're looking to find the policy, it's just, it's not, it's not realistic. And there's also ways just to mitigate the risk, right? I, I joke with clients that you could have those three deal team members walk around with their hands over the ears for a couple of days while you get the policy. <laughs> in, right? But right. You know, it, in truth, you know, in the way that the actual knowledge is, drifting, is, is written, that actually could work. But the point being, you can get a policy coverage put in a couple of days post-signing if need be. And the risk is not that you're going to blow your policy coverage. And, and I think just having that again in the, in the tool chest of when you're in that most stressful time of, of tight times and, and deadlines, people that are always used to binding and signing might not even have a concept of, well, yeah, you have that option, right? You don't necessarily have to bind the signing, focus on what you need to do at signing, and then we'll get the policy put in place. Um, you know, be it in the middle of the process, be it, you know, we're going to start the underwriting after there's, there's a lot of ways to handle it thoughtfully where you're not taking on risk that you think you are. And it can potentially relieve some of that pressure pre-signing uh, that the, the process is inevitably going to cause. Right. Brian, weren't you on a deal recently, maybe as by side counsel, maybe as underwriting counsel, where it bound much later than signing, didn't it? Yeah, that did happen recently. Yeah, we were by side counsel and um, they needed to sign for a whole host of reasons. Uh, the policy uh, bound actually the full well after signing, we didn't even do the underwriting call till after signing, but it all worked fine. I mean, the, everything worked exactly as you said, Nick, and it was um, it was a good solution to a problem that was there. But again, I think it was the, uh, you know, there's a lot of creative approaches here. And, you know, I think that that just shows it, it can absolutely happen in practice as well and something that is happening too, so. Yeah, and then I had uh, a conversation with, with my colleague, Darlene, about sort of our topics of conversation. And she made a good point that it's worth noting most claims, you know, are, are within sort of 12 months you know, after an audit. It's not like typically post-signing, 
you know, you find out about something that, you know, seller held from you. And in which case, you know, you, then you're talking about like fraud issues. It's a whole different mess. It's just reality is it, it's not a big of a risk as I think people think in their stomach it could be, um, which I think rolls into my, my last thought on the timing is, is, you know, just keeping perspective, right? Is uh, you, you talked about your deal where they had bound for signing. You know, I had a, a very large deal, a, a take private, and they were looking to use reps and, the whole process was very intense and you know they weren't guaranteed to sign the deal and talked with them about reps obviously the benefit of, of having the insurance coverage and they're thinking it through while they're going through a billion other things in their deal and i basically just stepped back and i said listen at the end of the day you are going to do this deal whether or not you had rep insurance rep warranty insurance it's a fact and i said yeah absolutely and i said well then sign your deal that's the priority right. Don't let right. this, don't let the reps process become another distraction for your team. There's nothing more important than signing your deal. So right. I, I think just understanding again, that it doesn't always have to be put in place of signing. You know, the, 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 the most important point of, of getting your deal signed, you know, reps, we can get it done beforehand and we can figure out ways to do it cleanly, but sometimes it's just better to take it off your plate right now because you need to focus on signing. And there's a lot of different ways that we can handle that. And sometimes it's just a smarter way to go because when you're, when you're, tight at signing like your teams are stretched and now you're going to ask them to sit on a two-hour underwriting call Listen, sometimes it has to get done right but if you're if you're looking to sign a couple billion dollar deal like signing is the most important part so right. don't don't distract from that I mean I don't know what you're talking about those underwriter calls are by far the best part of the entire underwriting phenomenal, phenomenal. all right well now we like to transition our guests a little bit of the, the fun part of this RWI podcast as we like to call it um, once more unto the breach. Again, it's a little bit of play on words in case, in case that wasn't obvious to everybody. I'll just make it really clear. Um, so Nick, tell us, number one, the biggest change that you think we're going to see in the RWI space in the next 12 months. Uh, I mean, I'd like to see strategic m &A come back strong. I think that, you know, we've, there's obviously a lot of dry powder and then PE sponsors are doing deals and finding, you know, unique opportunities given the circumstances in the world. I think for large strategics, you know, unless there's specific uh, uh, deals that, that come through that are unique, I think they're they're being conservative until the world settles out. You know, there's 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 just generally less strategic M&A. So I think hopefully seeing that come back, I think that there's a great opportunity always has been, um, and I use strategic very broadly, but for companies that that maybe don't do M&A as often, but can still benefit from reps, and I think that's. Honestly, that's one of the spots where your broker can be the, the best value add because there's a lot of you know potential handholding and, and advice that can be given to teams. And so come back, strategic MA. Come back strong. <laughs> you heard it here first, everybody. Come back. Come back. <laughs> All right. Our second question. What is the best piece of career advice or two pieces, whatever you have to say, for someone who might be interested in working for an underwriter or a broker or just not as buy or sell side counsel in this process, but play a different role? Yeah. Get, get a job um, at Kirkland and Ellis, right? Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> for those for those lucky, lucky enough. Um, I, I can't I can't speak for the carriers, although I have lots of, of friends of carriers. I think you know, this this is a this is a fun space. Um, I think advice wise, um, you know, personality matters. I, I think, you know, like we talked about before, making this process human. It's always been you know, a focus for me, even when I was practicing, um, just understanding that you're working with people and those relationships and those, you know, it, it, they help the process. I think 
you know, just like when you've been through a deal with somebody once and you, the second time around, it's always going to be a little bit better. I, I think being yourself and, and, and honest and genuine, uh, even in times when it can be difficult and, you know, it may not be the, the best business look, I think is, is important because then I think yeah. you relate to people on a different level that in those tight spots and in, you know, situations where if people kept things formal, uh, the process would be less smooth. You know, letting your guard down a little bit will will help things go forward. Uh, you know, obviously respectfully, but uh, you know, not necessarily sticking to formalities and just being being yourself and being genuine. Yeah, open lines of communication for sure through all the parties is important yep. too. Um, okay, and then I think the best question we've had yet: What change has come into your life due to the pandemic that you like you would like to see stick around post pandy So outdoor dining, remote working. What is it that's come into your life that you like? I mean, remote working is an easy one. Um, do you I like it? Yeah. I I do. Uh, it's you know in in our world here, I don't think that there's too much of a necessity to to go in an office. It's not like if I have client meetings, not they're, they're coming to me. I mean, nobody's having meetings now, but when we do, you know, I'll, I'll go out and meet people. And the ability to uh, eliminate my commute has been yeah. amazing, yeah. amazing. And, and not, you know, having a little bit of space that's that's dedicated. I'm fortunate enough to have a little office in the apartment. And I think it makes me more productive. I mean, I'm, I'm active earlier than I normally would be until you know, later hours than I normally would be. And it allows me to sort of maintain a relatively consistent focus as opposed to, you know, when you commute in, commute out, trying to turn on, trying to turn off. Some people have difficulty with that working at home. For me, you know, I think just yeah. met, keeping a relative balance throughout the day um, has, has worked out pretty well. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the, uh, of the working from home. I, I also like not commuting, but I can't say that I'm a big fan of the remote working. I'm looking forward to the time when everybody is back at the office. Because going yeah. to the office when it's just me is like not, it's not really it changes my immediate environment, but it's not really changing like my day very much, but I, I miss the good old days. Brian, what about you? What's the one pandemic change you're looking forward to keeping alive? Yeah, I, I've actually, so I was a uh, five day a week in the office person and usually there by eight or eight fifteen. So I was, this was a whole curveball to me, but I agree with Nick. I've actually gotten pretty used to it. And um, we said, uh, we always wanted to make this uh, enclosed porch we have a home office for me and I've like completely decorated it and have my fancy Eames chair there now and I made it like the way I like it and yeah. so it's uh, I don't know I've gotten like pretty adjusted to it and I don't know it's uh, this is it actually be odd I think to kind of go back the other way now for me anyway and you know this is again coming from somebody who never worked from home or rarely worked from home and you know, was not, not at all used to this. So, um, so what, so Jenna, we know that you're, you have a different feeling than us on this, <laughs> but what is the change that you want uh, to keep around post pandemic? Well, I definitely like the outdoor dining and Blasio and the city council agrees with me because it is now forever allowed. There's no end in sight for the outdoor dining. So I really like that. It makes the city feel very alive and very, you know, European. Um, so I'm definitely glad to see that that's sticking around. And then also I have gotten very used to doing like exercise in my apartment for the people on the podcast right over there is my little exercise <laughs> space. And it's really like, 
I really enjoy it. I don't miss going to a yoga studio or a gym or anything. It's really, it's very, and it's very easy for me to fit into my schedule. So I think those two things I, uh, I'm looking forward to keeping around. It's the outdoor dining on 6th Ave that makes me concerned. The ones on the avenues where people are really like, the cars are flying and oh, yeah, they're, yeah. they're like, they've moved it out to the street beyond the, yeah. the I love this, the, the, the side street ones, phenomenal. They're fantastic. The avenues make me a little uncomfortable. I'm going to be honest. They, it's just, I don't know. It's, they freak me out. Yeah. Are they gonna yeah. Keep I know or? what you're saying, but I like it anyway. I have to say it's such an improvement from like March or April when I would like run outside and it was like, you know, it just looked like this. It wasn't a ghost town. It wouldn't, especially where I live, there was always some activity, but now with people on the street, when I go for a run in the morning, people are having coffee, they're outside, they're at the diner. It's just so alive. It's so much. Good to see life. Good yeah, to see life. Totally. Yep. Great. Well, thank you very much, Nick, for joining our show today. We uh, really appreciated uh, having you as a guest. And um, you want to give uh, your contact information in case anybody wants to, wants to get a hold of you? Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking how this is going to be a little bit tricky because my last name is so fun to spell. But uh, it's, it's nick.tulibitz, T-U-L-I-E-B-I-T-Z, at assuredpartners.com. Assured, A-S-S-U-R-E-D, partners, everybody knows how to spell. Uh, and you know, feel free to reach out. I'm ha happy to talk with anybody. And I, I make this point, I'll make it universally now. This is maybe dangerous, but I make this universal point that it, it doesn't matter who you're working with. You can be working with another broker. You know, it's about the relationships. However, I can be helpful. I'm happy to. Uh, so that, that's the most okay. important point. So if, if I can be, feel free to reach out and, and happy to talk through. Well, and we'll put your contact information in the show notes. So that oh, that's good. Because nobody's going to write my name down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. Right. <laughs> well, it's also a point we can uh, personally attest to with you, Nick. You've been uh, very, very helpful to us. And we've really appreciated that. And uh, we're uh, happy to have you on today. So, well, thank you very much, everybody, for joining uh, Into the Breach. It's been another great episode. And until next time. Thank you for listening to Into the Breach. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, please visit rwipodcast.com. The views and opinions expressed by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Cyfarth Shaw, LLP, its partners, or its employees. The podcast does not provide legal or other professional services. This podcast is made available by the lawyer publishers for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the law, not to provide specific legal advice. By listening to this podcast, you understand that there is no attorney-client relationship between you and the lawyer publishers. The podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state. As defined in the State Bar of New York's Code of Professional Responsibility, this podcast is considered a form of attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee similar outcomes.